The Bedroom Producing Podcast, Season 1, Episode 6. Welcome to the Bedroom Producing Podcast. If you're a bedroom producer and you want to release tracks, perfect your workflow, or explore a new creative process, then this is the podcast for you. Today's guest is Jonathan Van Clute from the San Francisco Bay Area. There's a lot to talk about in today's episode. Jonathan and I are going to discuss some early examples of electronic music. We're also going to get into room treatment. We're going to discuss some different creative workflows. And lastly, we're going to talk a little bit about mobile producing. Jonathan, welcome to the show. Well, thank you. Good to, good to see you again. Good to hear from you again. It's been, it's been a minute since we've really sat down and talked. Likewise, my friend. It's been too long. Too long. Hey, so I, w- I want to talk to you about um, creative process and stuff today. But before we get into all of that, would you be so kind as to just tell us a little bit about your musical background and how you became a bedroom producer? Sure. Um, I've kind of actually always been doing it my whole life, but I've been literally writing. When I say writing music, I mean like with a pencil and paper uh, since I was uh, about four years old. Somewhere I can't find it anymore, but somewhere I have the first piece of sheet music when I was four and three quarters, I think. Cause you know, when you're a little kid, those three quarters matter. Uh, so I remember it says age four and three quarters on it. And that was the first finished quote unquote piece of music that I wrote on paper. And I can still play it actually. It's a very simple little tune. Uh, it was called <laughs> the happy cats go purr. Oh, love it. Uh, love it. Yes. Wonderful. First release. <laughs> it wasn't it though. Yeah. So it really set the world on fire. Um, but uh, yeah, you know, so I, I was playing music on the piano as a little, little kid and I just grew up with a piano in the house. So I just would hear stuff and I would play it and it was all by ear. Uh, I, I was always really ear focused. And then, you know, as I got older, I got into piano lessons. My parents, you know, let me take piano lessons and everything like that. Um, but I quit piano lessons probably, I think I was around 10 or so because I finally, I just got fed up with, I would come to the lesson with a piece of music I'd written and I'd want to go, I'd go to the teacher and I'd say, well, you know, Hey, I want to play this. Can you help me? And I wanted, I basically wanted production assistance. I wanted to learn how to write music. I wanted to compose And every single time the response was always, well, no, you have a recital in two weeks, whatever you need to learn this piece. And I'm like, mm. these are great pieces, you know, Bach and Mozart, the classics or whatever they may be. They're great pieces of music, but I'll listen to them and enjoy them, but I'm not interested in playing other people's music. I want to play my music. I want to make my stuff and nobody would help me with that. So I basically bailed on the idea of music uh, as a little kid. I just was like, okay, that's that. And then in junior high, I started playing viola in sixth grade and I did that for a couple of years, but then we needed cellos and a cello is just a giant viola. If you actually know those two instruments, they literally are the same. It's just one is small like this and your shoulder and one is large in your lap, but they're the same string, same fingering, same, same everything, just bigger. So it was a very easy transition. So I played cello for a couple of years, but still I wasn't, it wasn't my music. I was just playing in an orchestra and whatever. And mm-hmm. um, in high school, then a friend of mine had a cassette tape of this kid who was a senior at the time of music and I didn't understand it my friend was playing this cassette and I was hearing this music and I was just blown away I was like what is this this is crazy like I couldn't even describe it it was just a mind-blowing and he's like oh it's a cassette from this kid Brett I remember his name he was was Brett I remember his last name um and it blew me away I was like how the hell what is this This is incredible well it was samples 
Mm-hmm. And that was what blew my mind. I had never heard or that I knew of. I didn't know the term sampling yet. This would have been 87. Yeah, this would have been 87. And this kid, Brett, had a sampler. And it was probably an old Mirage or one of the early, in you know, Sonic or something like that, whatever. And he was making music with some kind of MIDI sequencer and a sampler. And so, of course, it was all these impossible, all these real sounds that I couldn't do on a piano or even a synthesizer. And I was like, how? This is amazing. And I discovered that on the Macintosh back at that time, there was a program called uh, Studio Session. And it turns out that's what he was using. Studio Session was an eight-track sequencer. Each track was monophonic, so you can do chords. You can do one note per track. Wow. But each but each track could be triggering any sample you wanted, and it could do 8-bit monophonic samples at 8-bit 11 kilohertz, I think. That's all it could do. But it could do eight of them simultaneously. But you had to click the notes. It was literally manuscript paper on a screen, and you'd click in notes and rests in musical notation wow to trigger yeah. things so different uh and so i got it my dad had a mac we had a mac in the house and my dad got me a copy of studio session and i started playing around with it and i started making my very first songs were all click it click entered one note at a time on this program studio session i still have an old cassette of them and um in fact actually some of them are even on my old soundcloud uh but anyway yeah that, that was my first music was was done that way on a mac and then over time, you know, I started discovering synthesizers. My dad got me my first synthesizer, which was a Casio CZ101, which I still have it's sitting up there on my shelf. Uh, and, um, you know, then from there, of course, once you get bit by the, the gear bug, you know, then it was like I was the kid in high school. Like most kids would have plastered up on their walls. They'd have, you know, pin up pictures of hot girls or cars or stuff like that, whatever. Yeah. Mine was cut was pages torn out from keyboard magazine. <laughs> everything everywhere i swear to god every inch of my walls was covered in drum machines and profit synthesizers and the latest korg and you know whatever uh it was just everywhere so my room was a shrine to gear and uh, i just started you know every spare penny i could scrape together i was buying used equipment you know yamaha spx 90 i remember that that was great uh, uh rack mount synth i loved that thing and uh, I just started buying gear and I started making music at home. I had uh, my first sequencer was um, Master Tracks Pro. And uh, from there, I went to Performer and there was no digital audio yet. Uh, so it was all just sequencing. And of course, I got a sampler eventually. And then that introduced a whole new world of cool stuff I could do, mixing samples with synthesis and, and drum machines and everything. And uh, I started, I spent high school every year of high school after freshman year. This freshman year was sort of my discovery of that this was this was a thing this existed you could do this and i could do it all myself i had tried doing bands a few times with with other kids and stuff but Mm -hmm. you know people flake they don't show up they don't practice whatever it was just always a a pain in the ass and i just was like i just want to do my own thing can't i just do it all can't i just do all the parts myself and all of a sudden i could and so that's what i started doing and i built a little studio in the corner of our living room and um, I would spend basically all my time there. I didn't party. I didn't go out. I didn't date. I didn't really, you know, I'd hang out with friends occasionally, but mostly I just wanted to be home making music. And every year of high school after freshman year, I released quote unquote, released a, an album on cassette. And the first two were more like EPs. They were like four to six tracks or whatever. Um, and then I did in senior year, I did my first like quote real album. And it was again on cassette because I looked into CD printing. CD printing was just starting to become a possible thing you could really do at that point in smallish numbers, but small was still like a thousand units. And I, I just, I couldn't, I couldn't afford that as a you know 17 year old. 
Mm-hmm. Um, so I did cassette and I sold them one by one. I did a hundred cassettes and I had a box of them and I sold them just by hand one by one, seven bucks a piece. And I sold all, all of them. And, um, I got, I had a kid at school airbrush me cover art. And so he airbrushed me a, a big giant version of it that I still have somewhere. It's in the garage, I think. Uh, and then I went to Kinko's. I spent like an all nighter at Kinko's color Xerox, reducing it down to cassette tape size and, and cutting out J cards and Pat, you know, the whole, the whole nine yards. And from there, that really made it clear to me that like, no, this is, this is a thing and, and I can do it all myself. I don't need anyone else. I don't have to rely on anybody else. I can make all of the music myself. Yeah. I think that's a a common theme that I've noticed speaking with some other producers is that, you know, it can be difficult to coordinate a a band or a group for a number of reasons. It's, Mm -hmm. it's extremely difficult. And uh, it can be difficult to get your vision into the art. But if the computer or the DAW or the equivalent of that gives you the power to compose on your own and and see your vision come to life. Yep. Yeah. When people ask me today, every once in a while, you bump into somebody and you say, oh, you know, you're a musician. Of course, the first question is always like, oh, what do you play? And, you know, my answer now is, you know, honestly, I play the computer. I play the computer. Uh, you know, it's like, I'm still, I can sit down at a piano and I can play and I can sit down at a keyboard and I can play and I can probably even still fumble my way through like a viola or a cello guitar. I'm fairly useless with uh, just because I've never been able to get my hand. I like guitar. I own a guitar, but I just getting my hand into those positions. I just, my, my hand doesn't want to do it. Yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, this day, these days, my answer is usually just, you know, honestly, I, I play the computer. I just, I could pull out my keyboard and play parts in, but I just, I know what the notes are that I need. I know where they are in the piano roll. I understand the relations of the different pitches and the different timings and everything like that. I think it's just easier and quicker to either click them in with a mouse or enter them, just play them on a keyboard, on, on the computer, the QWERTY keyboard. It's just easier. Yeah, so. just, yep, yep. I can understand that 100%. <laughs> and then the, that power of editing them. I imagine Absolutely. editing on the computer is a lot easier than editing on tape. A little, little bit. Yeah. I never actually, well, that's not quite true. I did. I ended up, the company I went to was a little local uh, uh, audio tape duplication company. They're they're the ones I went to in my senior year for duplicating my album and and making me a hundred copies and shrink wrapped and the whole nine yards um, and uh, uh, labels and and everything. And I I ended up asking them, Hey, you know, can I get a job here? And, and uh, you know, I was of course thinking like audio engineer, like that kind of job. I'm thinking like recording engineer, like I'm going to be mixing and that, whatever. I'm thinking that. And they were like, yeah, okay, so whatever. They hired me. And, but it was a duplication company. That's all they did was duplication. <laughs> so my job consisted of getting big pancakes of tape and putting them up on the machines and threading them through the reels and then just letting it rip. And then when they're done, get the splicing block out and cut it off and then splice on the leader and, and send it off to the guys who did the next step. And it was just absolute grunt work i think it lasted i don't know eight months maybe six eight months something like that and then uh, i went on to actually ironically not too long after that i went on to work for digital design but that's a whole nother whole nother thread <laughs> uh, well so it's still more interesting than bagging groceries which would have been one of my first jobs yep i never so. did that i did my only retail job again ironically music my only retail job that i ever did was working in a music in a music instrument store uh, oh. in Palo Alto. And uh, again, I thought you know, when they hired me, I was thinking like sales, like I'm, I'm going to be selling gear. Like, oh, how awesome is this? It's like, no, you're a kid. You're going to be sweeping the floors and stocking <laughs> the back room and staying out of sight. Get, get off the floor. Get out of here. We don't want to see you. 
<laughs> so it didn't last very long. I think it was like three, four months. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's funny because you hear about some of those stories where uh, someone goes to work at the music store and then they have this back room where everybody's yeah. working on music and that's how they learned and that's where nope. they started <laughs> off you know you listen to you know listen to a story about early dead mouse or something oh i want to make music on the computer and i i think he went to i think he went to work at a store or something and they had something him do like some that, stuff yeah. in the back and he learned all these production techniques or you listen to like all the early dubstep guys worked in a record shop and then they all worked in the back and learned all this production. And that actually all makes sense if you consider the, the time that took place, like late 90s, mm-hmm. right? Late 90s was the golden age to be actively involved in that world because it was just about to switch to the internet age it was just happening and the the laptops were suddenly becoming affordable and they could actually do a lot and reason came out around that time and suddenly software virtual instruments were were actually a viable thing they worked and they actually sounded good and you can actually use more than one and without spending 40 grand on the computer and you know it was like it was becoming real and possible mm-hmm. and you know for me that time was late 80s to early 90s and it wasn't there in that era. You you had to have a lot of money to throw out a lot of hardware and have a whole room full of gear, or you really couldn't get anywhere. Virtual instruments weren't even a thing yet. So yeah, I've always I've always kind of thought, musically speaking, I was just born like ten years too early. Like I just if I had if it had been just ten years later, I'd have been one of those people right there at the late '90s at exactly that cusp moment, doing all this stuff right then and who knows where you know I'm, i might be dead mouse who knows <laughs> <laughs> if only right <laughs> exactly, exactly. Uh, well tell me a little bit about some of the uh musical influences that you've had over the years and then how they've evolved mm. uh, my very first electronic musical influence was actually in the 70s uh and it was wendy carlos um switched on bach specifically uh my parents had that album on vinyl and I think I still have it in my record collection behind me somewhere. Um, but anyway, my parents had it on vinyl. And for those who don't know, it is pretty much, in my opinion anyway, I, I would say it's like the seminal electronic synthesis album, musically speaking. Um, it changed everything because prior to that album, electronic instruments synthesizers really is just the only thing they were called they were really only used for weird special effects weird sound mm-hmm. effects in movies and film or like the theremin and the beach boys and you know, stuff like that nobody was doing quote serious music um with synthesizers they were a novelty at best and wendy carlos comes along and does an entire album in, a, in an era where there was no such thing as a polyphonic synth Right. So this is a monophonic Moog synthesizer, you know, one of the old school room sized modular Moogs. And she produces, with the help of her her partner, a full blown album of Bach, you know, the Brandenburg concertos and like the classic Bach pieces on a freaking synthesizer. And it is insane it is still to this day one of my favorite things to listen to it is absolutely mind-blowing and especially if you can listen to a really high quality master of it in really good headphones and really listen to the production and listen to the tone of that old moog oh my god it's just amazing it sounds so good 
And if you then delve a little deeper there, because there are interviews and documentaries and things that have been done on her and, and the production of that album and everything like that. And if you discover what they had to go through back then to make that, I mean, you couldn't play a chord. You couldn't play a two note, anything. It was monophonic. And so everything was done multi-track, one track at a time and played, not sequenced, played. And it's insane. It's absolutely by today's standards. We just go, are you out of your mind? Nobody would do that. That's just, that's torture. That's just insane. Um, and it just sounds so good and it's so tight and the harmonies are so amazing. and The sounds are so big. And of course she went on to do, you know, the original Tron soundtrack and, uh, and so many more, you know, Clockwork Orange. I loved that. And, yeah. <laughs> I loved you know, all the, that stuff. All, yeah. all that stuff is just amazing, yeah. amazing stuff. Yeah. And of course the Beethoven and Clockwork Orange, you know, the classic Beethoven that she did for that. Uh, brilliant, brilliant work. Um, and that as a little kid, I remember I would listen to that album just over and over and over and over. And it, it just never ceased to just blow my mind. What, and I didn't understand at that time that it was a synthesizer. You know, the technical stuff was totally, totally beyond me, way over my head. I was, what was I like five years old or something? Uh, it just sounded amazing. And I loved it. I just could not get enough of it. And I love both aspects of it. I've loved that it was classical music I was familiar with because I did grow up hearing a lot of Bach and Mozart and, and Beethoven and Brahms and all, all the classical stuff. I, I heard a lot of that and I liked it all, but it had this spin on it. It just was otherworldly. It was like nothing I'd ever heard. It was these impossible tones and sounds and just incredible. And it was just getting me so excited and fired up. Um, and, you know, then many years later, I discovered synthesizers. You know, they had gotten much smaller. And yeah, they were actually portable yeah. now, and you could actually play a couple of notes at a time. And um, and that it was just like, oh my God, this is this is what I've been missing like all my life. This is this is it's like a piano, so I can play it, but it doesn't sound like a piano. It sounds like that thing when I was a little kid. Yeah. Uh, yeah. You know, and, and so that really for as far as being attracted to electronic music, that hugely, hugely influenced me and sort of set the tone for everything I was gonna love for the rest of my life. But then I think the second piece that sort of sealed my fate as going down the house music progressive music direction was from the 80s hooked on classics do you remember that At no all? i don't google it youtube okay. it hooked, hooked on, on classics. classics hooked on classics was a series that came out in the 80s i think early 80s and it is what the name implies it's classical music but it's done in sort of a montage medley form where it will transition from one song to another. And they're famous songs. You'll recognize it. You'll hear them be like, oh, my God, I know that song. You may not know the name, but you'll, you'll recognize it. And it, it will transition from one to another to another to another very seamlessly and smoothly. You know, every 45 seconds to a minute or so, it it's migrates to another song. But it's set to an absolute like TR nine oh nine four on the floor beat, <laughs> and it's just amazing. Boom, duck, boom, duck, boom, duck, boom, duck. and it's this classical music played by a full orchestra. It's no synthesis, anything. It's all it's real orchestra playing these classics to a total disco four on the floor beat. Wow! And again, as a little kid, I was like, "Oh my god!" It's again, it's this combination that I love. It's this classical, beautiful orchestral music but it's got this thing behind it that's just going yeah drive it drive it drive it and it just i had it on cassette and i just played it to death i, I just would, would i had one of those little portable tape recorders as a little kid and that i would just carry around with me um, yeah and i would play it. i remember i'd sit in the bathtub probably not the wisest idea in the world but i'd set it on the edge of the bathtub 
and I'd be playing it while I, you know, bath time, I'm like nine years old or whatever. And, and we're, I guess it would have been, yeah, yeah, it probably was like nine or 10, something like that. Um, and again, hooked on classics, but it was just that beat that just driving four on the floor, kick drum beat. I loved that. And, and so then as the new wave scene started to evolve and the eighties came along and you know, I was really into late eighties, I started discovering because a friend of mine had records and he sort of introduced me to like, you can buy records. And I was like, wow, this is cool. And, and especially European stuff, he was into imports and everything. So and yeah. of course the, that movement was much bigger in Europe. Um, and so at that time he started introducing me to the pet shop boys and Depeche mode mm-hmm. and, and mm-hmm. Howard Jones and OMD and, and all that stuff. Love all that and stuff. I loved it. Oh my God. All of it. I just, I could not get enough. So I started buying 12 inch singles because I discovered that the 12 inch single always had usually like the best song, but then it had like four versions of it that were really different. And so for my money, it was like, I don't want to buy a whole album. I want that song, but I want all these other cool versions. So I loved 12 inch singles and um, that combination of, of, you know, the, the electronic influence of hearing that Moog from Wendy Carlos and then the, the beat influence of the hooked on classics, just all sort of, and then the, the new wave influence to me, that is, that's where house went house and progressive totally went down that Avenue. And then of course you had big hits like um, William Orbit uh, stuff that he released and um Oh, I can't remember who the artist is that did that classical piece uh, that everybody has played to death for like 30 years now. Um, it was a famous classical piece. Oh, you would know it, but it's a total trance version. So like an adagio for strings or? Yes. Yeah. Uh, no, that was William Orbit. That one's William Orbit. Um, there's another one that one of the big producers of like the late 90s did and he would play it at all his shows. It was like his seminal. So one, of, one of Tiesto's? Tracks. It might have been, it, yeah, it might have been Tiesto. Uh, it was one of those guys, and it was like his his signature thing. He'd like end every show with it. That it was one of those kinds of things, whatever. And it was just this epic trance anthem, but it's this classical piece. And so again, I started hearing that stuff, and I was like, oh my god, this is this is amazing. <laughs> this is like everything but my name. This is just my perfect type of music. It's got all the influences all rolled together. This is incredible. Uh, and so I've just always loved that stuff. And anytime to this day, when I hear somebody, even if it's been done to, done to death, I hear somebody do a, a house version or a trance version or a progressive version of a classical piece. Even if I've heard 17 other people do it, I still love it. I still am just like, yeah, do it again. Do it again. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. I love that. <laughs> um, so having grown up with those modular synthesizers and the samplers and all the classic gear. I'm glad you hung on to some of that, by the way. Yeah. <laughs> I wish I'd hung on to all of it now, of course, but <laughs> Who I knew, had some right? good stuff. Oh, I got Juno 106, Juno 60. I mean, I, I had some sweet, sweet toys, but yeah. Oh, well. <laughs> well, having grown up all with all that, if somebody gave you $25,000 today to spend on only music stuff, how do you think you would spend it? Oh, that's a fun question. Oh, man. Um, oh, that's so tricky because I'm torn. I'm like really divided. Part, half of me is thinking, go classic stuff that you just can't get anymore. You know, go get some analog gear, the old, go like rebuy my Juno 106, get my 60, my Juno 60 back, get my, my MKS 30, 
uh, you know, like get the old rolling gear, like get that classic stuff that you just can't get anymore. Not the recreations and the re-releases, but like the real thing. Um, but of course that brings with it a lot of headaches and, and problems and stuff that maybe I don't want to deal with. Um, and then the other half of me, of course, is just saying, are you kidding me? No, you can do all of this and more in the computer now. Just get yourself, you know, a really, really good computer. Get, you know, I, I have some good monitors, although they're in boxes right now. But yeah, if I didn't get good monitors, treat your room. Like if I hadn't already done that, which I, I did as a project a few years ago, I treated my room and that was huge, huge game changer. I, I can't recommend that highly enough to anyone who's really serious about wanting to be a good bedroom producer you can't be a good producer if you can't hear what the hell you're doing mm. and if you're in a little square box no matter how much you think you can hear it you'll be shocked to discover how misled you are about what you're hearing um, with this the little subtle reflections and the weird things that happen in the corners of the rooms and stuff like that it's a little if you can get good headphones really good closed ear headphones you know that can help but still nothing beats a pair of really good, you know, good. And when I say really good monitors, I don't mean you have to drop 10 grand on monitors. No, I don't mean that at all. But you can, for a thousand bucks, you can get an amazing, amazing set of monitors now that will, are better than anything I ever had, you know, 30 years ago, 20 years ago. Can you recommend any resources for room treatment, yeah. monitors, anything like that? Yeah, I, I ended up, because uh, I did a lot of hunting around for ways that I could treat my room without, I didn't want to do it DIY. And you can do DIY. There are lots of sites that will show, you know, have plans for DIY base traps and DIY diffusers and, and all kinds of stuff like that. And I'm just not that handy. I'm not a big mm -hmm. DIY guy when it comes to that kind of stuff. So I wanted something that was fairly just plug and play out of the box, just throw it up on the walls and you're good. I ended up settling on the the London Prime Acoustic, the, the Prime Acoustic London set, uh, because they come in a variety of different preset packages for different room sizes with different numbers of bass traps and, and different numbers of, of diffuser panels and, you know, or, or, or basic panels, stuff like that. And uh, so for, I want to say it was like 600 bucks or something like that. It wasn't outrageous at all. I got everything I needed and I have a small room, so I didn't need much more than that. And so I've got panels on the sides. I've got small little squares up at the top strip that wasn't covered by the panels. And I've got two base traps in the corner. And then behind me, I've got a curtain I can draw shut when I want to, to, to kind of wall that section off. And it did wonders. Um, I did get, I bought a cheap uh, measurement mic from the, uh, the guys who make, um, uh, oh, what's that room, room measurement software? Um, I'm blanking on it, but anyway, it's the one everyone uses for measuring your room. Yeah, and I know what you're talking about. Yeah, I, and, and they I sell can't think of the name of it either, but I'll yeah. try and link it to yeah. this show. Yeah, they sell a microphone also. It wasn't, it was like 80 bucks or something. It wasn't outrageous. So I bought the yeah. room measurement mic and I did some measurements in my room and I did before and after, right? I measured the room before when there was nothing in an empty room. And of course they were just God awful. Um, and then I put the treatments in and I measured at various stages along the way. And it was like, wow, this really makes a difference. And it does. The room that is why I love being in this room. We were talking about this a little bit before the show started. I, I love being in this room, mm -hmm. no matter what I'm doing, whether I'm doing music or not, because it just, it feels good. And it feels good because it sounds good. It doesn't have any harsh anything. It doesn't echo. It doesn't reflect. It's just quiet and peaceful. And it's great. It's not soundproofed. Right. Soundproofing is a completely different thing. It's not that at all. Yeah. But it's treated and it just feels so nice to be in here because it sounds so nice. And I go into a different room in the house and the rooms are the same, right? They're the identical box. There's no difference. And the other rooms just don't, don't feel 
nice yeah. because they don't sound nice. They, they have a harshness to all the noise in them. Just even just the room tone. Yeah. When I sit in those other rooms, the room tone has this edge to it. Whereas I sit in my treated room and there's no edge at all. It's just nice and peaceful. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, I would recommend anybody if you at all, if you have a small budget, a couple grand for to, to do your room, treat it, get yourself a room kit, put it up and, um, and get some decent monitors and even, even six, 700 bucks. There are pretty good options, even down in, in that price range. You don't have to drop a fortune. So I, and I'm a cheapskate too. I, I will freely admit I am an absolute cheapskate. I'm a deal hunter. I'm always like my, my room treatment kit was a return on Amazon. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I got like a couple hundred bucks off of it because it was oh. an Amazon warehouse deal nice. or something. So, yeah. you know, and yeah, it had been mounted and taken down. Who cares? Yeah. Whatever. Yeah. Right. Save some money. Uh, then buy something else with it. So uh, yeah. yeah, I would probably make that 25 grand go really, really far. But yeah, certainly if I was starting from nothing, treat my room. Absolutely. Good monitors. Absolutely. Can you think of any brand monitors that are decent in that range? Yeah. I ended up going with the, uh, the alpha 65s from uh, Focal. That's right. Focal, or Focal, however you say it. Focal. Um, fo- Focal. 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 I don't know. Uh, but yeah, the alpha 65s, they were, I think 800 bucks or something like that, or maybe 800 bucks to a grand, some, somewhere in there. And, uh, and they are amazing. They, they were almost a little too big for my space. They're eight. They're, um, they're the eight inches. Or no, sorry. No, the 65s are not. That's right. They have a bigger one. The 65s are six and a half. That's why it's 65, I believe. Um, and they are way plenty for my space. Holy crap. They, they have so much bottom end to them. It was a little concerning, but then when I put the bass traps in, that that helped a lot with that. And um, they just sound amazing. Yeah. I mean, I think that that's one of the the biggest challenges for bedroom producers. And this this is all about, you know, bedroom producers. We're almost always in a tiny room. Yep. Which means you're always going to have tons of reflections. I mean, I came into a new room myself recently and I haven't treated this room yet. And I've just... I'm, I'm driving my fiance nuts because I'm putting <laughs> furniture all over the room <laughs> to help absorb the sound. Anything to break up and absorb. Yeah. Yep. Yep. But uh, no, it really does make a difference with the reflections and even us just chatting right now. Like I know that you're like literally just on your laptop mic. Yep. And uh, if you tried to try to talk on, on something like that without having at least something in the room, Yep. The amount of echo that you would get would be just incredible. Yeah, it would really be bad. I did actually, one thing I, I added that I, I wasn't originally expecting, I didn't plan for when I did the, the treatment of this room was I didn't plan for anything over my head. I didn't mm. think about that. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't until I got everything up, the treatments and everything that I sort of realized like, wow, okay, I've got all this overhead space with a flat ceiling over me that is flat and hard is the worst thing you can have. And, and it's mm-hmm. exactly the, exactly the worst distance. I have it's eight foot ceilings, which is mathematically the worst possible configuration you could have. I, I did lots of research on this and discovered, Oh my God, I have the worst room possible. Great. Um, and so I did pop like another, I want to say it was like 300 bucks or something like that for an acoustic cloud, a set of panels on acoustic mm-hmm. cloud also from uh, um, prime acoustic. And uh, had a friend come over to help figure out a rigging system to rig it to the ceiling. And, and you know, we, we, we ended up coming up with something that worked out really well. And uh, it, it effectively, for a, for a big, like, six foot wide by four foot deep square over my head, drops the ceiling a foot. 
Mm-hmm. So it's a seven foot ceiling directly over me. And it seems like, why would that really make a big difference? But it makes a huge difference. And it makes a huge difference for two reasons. One is just now the distance mathematically over my head isn't equidistant to the distance below my head to the floor. Because mm-hmm. that was the trouble was that where my head is when I'm sitting was exactly in between the floor and the ceiling, which is exactly where you don't want to be. Um, and so now the ceiling is effectively a foot shorter over my head. So it helps with the reflections in that regard. But also the material of the cloud is this, you know, uh, um, ro- uh, what do they call it? Rock wool, uh, mm. rock gla- glass wool or whatever. Any- anyway, yeah, I know what you're talking about. Yeah. It's, you know, it's specially designed to absorb. That's what it does. And it's also acting as a giant base trap to a certain degree because behind it, any base frequencies can pass through it and they'll get kind of caught between it and the ceiling. So it made a huge difference. I was shocked when I put that thing up there, all of a sudden when I'm sitting here under it, Again, all the sound is just calm. That's the word I, I the best mm-hmm. word I can think to describe it. It's just the sound calms down. But if I go walk to the back of the room where my curtain is, especially if the curtain's open, it's way more lively. If I've got music, when I had my monitors up, which I don't currently, but when I had my monitors up, I did lots of testing with this and I could put something, I would usually use like a dead mouse track as a reference or something like mm-hmm. that. I'd throw it up there, put it up at a moderate volume. And if I sat here at the monitors in the sweet spot, it sounded one way. And if I went to the back of the room, it got so much more lively, not necessarily in a bad way, but just in a way that as a producer in your room, you need to understand how your room sounds in different places, depending on where you're going to be. And there were times when I wanted to say, okay, what might this sound like in a brighter space? Yeah. Great. All I got to do is walk to the back of the room and now I can hear it more in a, like a normal room. Yeah. Um, so it was kind of a nice dual function that way. But yeah, a, a cloud over your head, if you're, especially if you're in a room where your head is going to be sitting in the middle, equidistant between the floor and the ceiling. If you've got the extra money to do it, a very worthwhile thing to have a cloud over your head. Yeah. Yeah. You know, for someone that's maybe listening to this, that's newer to room treatment, hasn't treated their room before. Can you just give like a, a real quick explanation of the difference between like a proper base trap versus Mm. Kind of like the the fifteen dollar yeah, foam panels that you see, yeah, yeah, and and why that's important. Yeah, absolutely. That is a a huge issue that I I really didn't understand a long time ago either uh, until I started to to sort of look up the 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 science behind acoustics, which is fascinating stuff. By the way, it's kind of a rabbit hole. You can you can get sucked down. There's a lot to read, but it's a very interesting one for us as bedroom producers. Basically, the difference. I'm trying to not go down the rabbit hole here. I want to keep this really yeah, the, simple. Yeah, so, the, 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 <laughs> um, quick, the quick Yeah, the, the, sim- the simple explanation. The point to a base trap is not... A lot of people times they think base trap means really thick foam. So you just want really, really thick foam. And that's not necessarily true at all. Like my base traps are not thick at all, but they are large and they are in the corners of the room. So they cut off the 90 degree connection of the walls. Because in a 90 degree connection, sound gathers there in those corners. And especially low frequencies, your low frequency energy likes to gather in those corners and just kind of get, get stuck there. Uh, so um, it, with a bass trap, what you've got is it cuts off the angles of the corners, which does two things. One, it gets rid of this 90 degree inflection that you've got between the, the two walls that join and it kills that, which is nice. Mm-hmm. But the second thing is it leaves this big gap behind it so there's this open empty space back behind between the base trap itself between the 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 foam or whatever and the wall and that gap back there becomes a place to keep 
the low frequencies, the, the excess low frequency energy that you don't want. You want it to just kind of get trapped back there. That's why the name is base trap. Mm -hmm. They trap that low frequency energy and keep it back there so it doesn't come bouncing back out at you. Mm -hmm. um, and then muddy up your your audio auto your your auditory view of what's going on and throw you off and make you think you've got too much low end. And so you start EQing to roll off all this low end, but you don't actually have all that low end. You're just hearing reflections bouncing back at you and they can get out of phase and they can just cause all kinds of problems. So yeah, that's the reason why you really want a base trap. And it's not enough to just throw, you know, like you said, one inch and a half egg crate foam on the walls, that stuff that will absorb high frequency sounds. And so that actually makes your problem so much worse because now what you've done is you've put foam all over your walls that's going to absorb all your high frequencies. What does that leave you with? Low frequencies. So what does it sound like? I got too much low end. So let me roll off the lows and you end up EQing everything out. So then you play it back in your car or something, do the car test. And you're like, where's all my bass? What the hell happened? I got no low end. What is going on? And that's why it's because your room is totally misleading you because you've treated it in completely the wrong way. So treatment does not have to be, in, in fact, shouldn't be layer every inch of your room with foam. You don't want to do that. That's going to give you a dead room. And as producers, that we don't want a dead room. We want a controlled right. room that just has treatments where we need them to solve the problems that we have in the room, which brings us to another point, which is that if you don't know what your room's problems are, mm -hmm. How do you fix them? Mm -hmm. So the first step, I think, if anybody wants to treat a room is you got to start from the perspective. Don't assume you know what your problems are. Get yourself an inexpensive measuring microphone and some inexpensive, in, inexpensive software to do it. I think there's even some free software to, to measure your room and take some measurements and find out. Do I have a problem with low end? Do I have a problem with high end? Do I have a problem with phase? Do I have a problem with reflection? Where are my problems? And then you can start to attack treatment with a goal in mind of, okay, I know I have the problem of too much low end and I have a problem of, you know, whatever, whatever else it is. And then you can start to start to attack it. Yeah, no, that's a wonderful explanation. I, I think that'll help out a ton of people that are listening to this. And uh, I know that I certainly am going to need to refer back to all the references. And uh, when I get into a, a, a permanent bedroom studio. Yeah. It was, it was definitely a journey. Yeah. Yeah. It was, it was a lot to learn. Yeah. Yeah. It definitely can be. Well, Hey, I want to shift gears a little bit. Um, I want to talk with you a little bit about creative process. Uh, you've released music in the past under the moniker Huxless Aldi. I was wondering if you could just tell me a little bit about what that style of music was and how you would describe that. And then a little bit about your creative process. Um, you know, that was a funny thing about that release. Um, I had never, I had never released anything under that name before. It just popped into my head one day and I Googled it and was shocked to discover that nobody anywhere at all had ever used that name. I was completely blown away by that. Cause to me, it seemed really obvious and it was an experiment. I didn't know what I was going to do, where it was going to go. I was working with a music production coach and th this was during a, a period of time in uh, like 2018 when I was, I was kind of at a, a crossroads in my life and I hadn't done music really seriously in a long time. And I decided, you know, I need to take a stab at this. I need to really like focus and, and, get serious for a while and let's see what happens. Let's see what I can do. I want to, mm -hmm. and I, I kind of, we got to talking about me and my, and the coach got to talking about kind of goals and, and 
what do I want out of this? Where do I want to go with this? And, and I kind of concluded like, you know what? I'd like to, I'd like to release something. I thought we said it, we figured out a date. We're like, okay, by this date, I'm going to have something to release. And what that's going to look like, what that's going to sound like, I don't know yet, but I'm going to have something. And um, I, I said about, again, with no, no real end result in mind, I just started creating. And um, we came up with, a, a, I forget exactly how it all went down, but it was, we came up with some idea of like, okay, by, by X date, you need to have 10 track ideas my, fleshed out to various degrees, yeah. so some number, and um, in whatever styles, don't know, don't care, but whatever they are, and then we'll we'll examine those ten ideas and we'll pick like okay, what seems to be the strongest ones here? What's what's the weakest? Whatever, and we'll sort of pick a, a direction for this to head, and then maybe see about finishing something. And so I did that, and it just so turned out that I did, I did nine. I ended up with nine, not ten. I ended up with nine. Uh, nine ideas and various uh, various stages of completion. And I went back and I looked at them or listened to them. And I sort of realized by no conscious planning of my own, maybe it was my subconscious work, I don't know. They fell into three very distinct groupings of three. They just did. I didn't know why, but three of them all fit together. And then these three all really fit together. And then these three all really fit together, but, but they were different. Each group of three was not like the other. And so I wasn't sure what to do with that. I thought, well, hmm, that's weird. So like, what style am I? That was part of my exploration with this coach was what's my sound. I've never figured that out. Mm -hmm. um, people have always ever, in you know, my whole life, I've always, you know, you tell people you're a musician. They, the first question is always, what do you play? Uh, the second question is what style of music? Mm -hmm. And that question I never could answer. I, you know, uh, I got a, there was a, a kid who, uh, when I was in high school and I had released my, my third, uh, quote unquote album in, in high school on cassette, there was a kid who got a copy of it and he wrote for some little indie. It wasn't an e-zine cause there were no e-zines yet, but it was like an indie music rag or whatever. I don't know what you'd even call it, but it was some, you know, like a newsletter, I don't know, whatever. Anyway, but it was physical, physical printed thing. And he wrote for this. And so he did a review of my album for the, for this at one time. Yeah. And he, I wish I could remember word for word exactly how he labeled it because it was hilarious. It was appropriate too, but it was hilarious. But it was something along the lines of, uh, you know, quirky, catchy, upbeat, electronic dance music for Erasure fans who hate Andy Bell. Who was, of course, the singer for Erasure because I had no singing. It was all instrumental. <laughs> um, and, it, and it did, I, I realized it was, it was, it did sound a lot like Erasure. It was very heavily Erasure influenced. I even realized I, without knowing it, I wrote, if for, for those for Erasure fans who know the song, I wrote the chorus to O L'Amour. Oh, really? In one of my songs without knowing it. I, I didn't know that song yet. <laughs> I, I, I learned that. I discovered that song later, but I have the same chords, same exact structure, everything. And then mine changes completely. It goes a total different direction. It, it's a different song than the rest of it. But the chorus, it's exactly the same. <laughs> um, so, you know, I get why he would have he would have made that connection. But anyway, um, back in the in the you know 80s, late 80s and early 90s, when I was doing the bulk of my music, electronica wasn't a thing yet. Mm -hmm. um, you know, that, that term didn't exist yet. So uh, I never knew what to, what to call my music. I just had no idea. I don't know. It's dance music, but it wasn't really dance music. It's, 
it's synthesizer-y music, but it's not what most people think of when you say synthesizer. And it's it's sort of poppy, but it's it doesn't have singing. It's not vocal. So, you know, I don't know. I never knew what to call it. I ended up usually getting lumped in as um, new age, mm. just because that was the only genre back at the time that was doing instrumental electronic synthesizer stuff. Yeah. It's new age. Yeah. Uh, you know, the early Wyndham Hill electronic releases and stuff like that. And, um, but it was, it wasn't really new age either. It, it, it just, I don't know. It never really fit anywhere. I didn't know what to do with it. And that was part of what led me through most of the nineties. I didn't touch music um, because I just sort of, well, in addition to life happening, you, know, you graduate high school and you get a career and you get married and you know, life. Yeah. These things, but uh, you know, life finds a way to get in the way. Uh, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh <laughs> What was that? Sorry, sorry, what Jeff. Was that Goldblum. movie? Was it Jurassic Park? Call that Sorry, Jeff. Um, but anyway, you stole Jeff Goldblum's line. <laughs> I did. Uh, I, I improved it though, so it's okay. Um, but anyway, uh, um, so it, it wasn't until you know the term electronica came along. I first heard that term probably the early two thousands that I realized, like, yeah, wait a minute, that I like that. That's an all encompassing. It's just, it's electronic music. It's just, it's its own thing. And so. Um, I think I would describe your music as electronica. I absolutely if, would today. If I was picking a genre. Yes. 100%. 100% yeah. I would today. But at the time, so I had these three groupings of three tracks each that were really different and strange and, and weren't really anything like anything quite I had done before. It was part of also what I was doing is I was trying to just reach in different directions and, and see what happens, what comes about. And um, I ended up picking three tracks that were sort of the most completed. Um, and also they fit together really well. And, uh, you know, they decided I actually at the time I planned to do three albums. I was going to have the red album, the green album and the blue album. So it was going to be RGB. Mm. And each one would be these three tracks, but they were going to be each one quite different from the other. So there really was no cohesive sound to the artist. It was just sort of an experimental idea i never did i I haven't done the other two albums they still have the three tracks the the other six tracks rather in their various stages of incomplete but um uh the first one you know i released as the red album and i didn't even give the songs titles you know i named them shades of red each song is just a shade of red so uh, i didn't want to give any bias or influence to the listener at all on what these are what they're saying, whatever. I, I, I can't stand that. Like, well, what are, you, what are you saying with your music? I'm not saying anything. It's music. Like, just experience it. Get what you get. I don't, you know, whatever. Um, and so, uh, you know, I just put this out there and it is not like anything else I have ever done before or since. I still really like it part, in large part because of how odd it is. Even I, I can listen to it and I just enjoy it because it doesn't sound like me yeah. to me. Well, like, <laughs> So one of the things I really like about your music is, is first of all, I'd say there's a lot of ear candy in your music. So if you put mm-hmm. on a good set of headphones, you're going to appreciate it a lot more. You know, it's not necessarily just that big club system music. You And that's characteristic, I think, of, of good electronica. A lot of the time is that there are nuances that you'll pick up with a good set of headphones. Totally. Um, and then I like that you said, what am I trying to say with the music? Well, I'm just, I'm just kind of letting the music speak for itself. Yep. So to that point, I was wondering if you could talk 
a little bit about uh, some different workflows, for instance, that you might have used in, in creating your music or some different workflow processes. Like I remember one time you told me you were going to write a track and you just wanted to collect a bunch of samples. I remember another time you told me you wanted to write a track and I think you used kind of like an acapella as an inspiration, but then mm-hmm. left the acapella out. Yeah. Can you tell me about some of, some of these kind of workflows? Absolutely. In fact, okay, here, so this will be fun because nobody knows this. In that album, uh, it's Vermilion. Okay, it's the second track on this album, Vermilion. Vermilion. Um, is, vocally speaking, is the song, let me make sure I get the title correctly. Yes, that's what I thought. Okay. It is vocally, Call Me Maybe by Carly Rae Jepsen. <laughs> that's fantastic. <laughs> and literally no one in the world except you and now your audience and my production coach knows that. Um, so I'll link the, so it's, it's on SoundCloud, right? Yes. It's on SoundCloud. So I'll, I'll link it. And then the track name is Vermilion. So yes. if anybody listening wants to pause this and check out the Vermilion track, yep. they'll know what we're talking about. Yeah. So <laughs> what I did with that song, that was, that was, uh, I did a whole, a whole bunch of experimentation with this approach. Um, and this is a, I had never done this before. And it was something that intuitively seemed ridiculous and like, this won't work, but that was part of what drew me to trying it was like, it seems like this is not going to go well. So I have to just try it and see what, see what happens. Yeah. Um, and that's, that's a that, you know, quick aside. That's something I always recommend to people is just try something crazy. Just that makes no sense that you would never do try it. Cause you might be shocked at what you discover because when you put yourself in the situation to have to do something you've never done before, it throws all of your normal habits, workflows, preconceptions, biases out the window. You got nothing. You're you're just a blank slate and you're just winging it and you'll discover stuff. I love that. So what I did was I decided, okay, I don't normally work with vocals. I, I have done a little bit of production before and other people's stuff where there were vocals. And I was part of a two-man synth band a long time ago and, and he was the, the lead vocal and I did backing vocals. And so I, I mean I've been around vocals a little bit, but my own music, I'm just eh, I'm not a singer. I don't, I don't to me, the, the human voice is just another instrument. So I do love stuff like Cirque du Soleil, mm-hmm. where they use the voice as just an instrument. There's no actual language there. It sounds like language, but it's not. It's gibberish, right? I love that. That's awesome. Um, but anyway, so I decided I'm going to go get a bunch of acapellas. I'm just going to go out on the internet and go hunting for acapellas. I don't really know or care what they are. I'm just going to find some. And I'm going to make music to the acapella, which seems totally backwards totally not going to work, totally impossible. How do you even do that? But I'm going to just try it and see what happens. And I was stunned that not only did it work, but it made the creative process so ridiculously fast and easy. It blew my mind. And so what I did in the case of Vermilion was I went out and I stumbled across, I don't even remember where I found it or how I found it, but I stumbled across an acapella of Carly Rae Jepsen singing, Call Me Maybe. And I know that song vaguely. I kind of remember when it came out. It was goofy pop, you know, whatever. I remember some some funny internet memes going around with with the the girl with the psycho eyes. Uh, you know, you know the one I'm talking about that that um, the psycho girlfriend eyes or whatever. Anyway, there's this meme of this girl who's got this. She can do this eye thing that is just like terrifying. Um, anyway, uh, and so there's a there's like a lip, lip sync of her singing this song, and it makes it very stalker esque. You know, she's very stalker. Uh, anyhow, so I got this acapella, I slapped it into Ableton, 
which is my, my main DAW uh, these days. And um, I just started building around it. I just went with the melody she was singing and I just figured out some chords I threw under it and, and, you know, it, it just sort of layered some stuff up. And then um, fairly quickly after that, once I had kind of a basic structure thing going on, I just muted her and continued and and yeah. you know and it it came out great and i have several others several of those other six that have never been finished were done the same way um i took a queen acapella uh of uh we are the champions of all things like what the hell uh and queen is <laughs> but you know and, and freddie mercury's range is so insane and queen's music is so freaking complex that that was a very weird one to try to work to i it's bet part of why i did it i wanted the challenge of difficulty of like how am i gonna even do this right. um i did another one to an old fleetwood mac song one of their early 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 songs uh but anyway that process i i was shocked to find out man this works really well it's incredible it makes everything so fast because i'm not starting from that blank piece of paper Right. I'm not you're not going to the blank screen, the blank DAW, the, the, the writer's block. So many artists. I see people talking all the time in forums and articles, stuff like that, about like, how do you overcome the blank DAW that's just staring at you and so intimidating? You know, where do you begin? Whatever. And although I don't personally ever yet generally struggle with that anyway, because I'll, I'll just throw anything down. I don't care and just see what happens. But throwing a vocal down gave me this whole template to play with. And I wasn't in any, but I didn't know the song well enough that I was going to like end up replicating the same chords or the same melodies or anything like that. All mm -hmm. I really had to go on was her voice, right? which is monophonic, right? It, it's just one note, just moving its thing, doing its thing, whatever. And so, uh, you know, I built this whole song around it. And if you play, you know, if you play Vermilion and Call Me Maybe, you know, they don't sound anything alike. There's no. like no similarity. No. But if you were to have just if you were to take the acapella, throw it into a DAW, throw over a million in a DAW and layer the two on top, you'd be shocked. You go like, holy crap. It's an absolute perfect fit. They just slot <laughs> right in. It's bizarre. Um, so you can that that's one of the cool things about music is, is key changes, you know, major and minor are often the same thing. You know, you get the whole thing where one major key is another minor key. And, and so all of a sudden things can fit together that don't seem like they should, but they do. Mm -hmm. And that can create some very cool, happy accidents. You mean like the relationship between the major key and like natural minor, for yeah. instance? Is yeah. that what you're talking about? Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Mm -hmm. So, you know, a major and a minor can actually be the same keys. Yeah. yeah. You know, it's just all in where you're starting from. What's your point of reference? And, and so yeah. you, once you discover that sort of thing, you realize, wow, wait a second. I can, there's a lot of flexibility here in what I can do and make stuff work. that doesn't maybe at first seem like it should work. Um, and so this technique of slapping in an acapella to give you something to start from and then just killing it once you're partway down the road uh, worked incredibly well for me. I was stunned. Wonderful. So I have a whole, whole library, a whole folder filled with acapellas that I can just grab one at any time if I'm just out of ideas or I just want, I want an idea that's just sort of random generated, like a random idea generator. And I grab an acapella, throw it in. I don't even know what it is. I don't know the song. Don't care. It's an acapella. Go. Love it. And see what you get. Love it. Love it. What a great workflow, man. Yeah. <laughs> it was a fun one. It was a very weird one, but it was a fun one. Yeah. What about the idea of just like grabbing a bunch of samples and throwing them into a folder? <laughs> is there anything more to that workflow or? Yeah, I mean, like uh, uh, another one of the songs um, actually on this EP, uh, it was the, the oh, I think it was Sinopia. Let me see. Yep. Yep. It's Sinopia. Uh, the third third track on this EP was actually the first of the nine songs that I started working on. Mm -hmm. 
And it started from me wanting to just see if I had every, if I had my record player hooked up correctly and I could, could sample it. Um, Cause I have a record player. I hadn't used it in forever. And I, you know, it has a US, a USB record player. It has a USB out on it. Mm. And I wanted to sample from it. I'm like, oh, how cool is that? It's got a USB port on it. So I want to see if I can sample from this thing. Yeah. So it was really just a test. So I grabbed and uh, randomly chose a record off my shelf. It was an Olivia Newton-John record uh, from like late 70s, early 80s, whatever. I didn't even know it, actually. I don't even know where I got it, how it's in my, I have no idea where it came from, but it's in my collection. So I just grabbed it, threw it on there. There was a song that had a, a, a finger-picked guitar bit. Uh, at the beginning and so i just as a test I, I just recorded it threw it in my sampler whatever and then i used pushes feature to just map it across all the all the buttons that i had my push at the time yeah um and i did the auto i forget what they call it auto slice or yeah whatever yeah. something like that whatever mm-hmm. um and then i just started playing the finger picked notes on the pads and i just immediately i stumbled onto this pattern of notes in a different completely different order it sounded nothing like the original of course but it, yeah it was so cool. I was like, oh, I like that. That's really neat. So I sequenced it. And then and I knew a whole track grew out of this Olivia Newton-John sample that I never expected to sample. It was just a, is my record player working? Can I, can I record from it? That's an awesome workflow. Guys, keep in mind, we're not lawyers. So do your own research on the legalities of sampling other people's work. Um, so, you know, workflow with samples, I, I don't, I don't just have like a giant folder of samples and I feel like that would probably not be terribly useful Mm -hmm. from a workflow standpoint. How do you, how do you make sense of it? I used to be really fanatical and fastidious about organizing my samples. I would have everything really broken down into different folders for the different kinds of sounds and, and all this kind of thing. And, and I was like, I'm sure so many people have been at various points in their, their musical lives. Uh, I was a sound hoarder for a long time, you know, gigabytes upon gigabytes upon terabytes of sound packs, you know, <laughs> you must have them all. <laughs> I have a lot of them. You know, sounds.com would do those. Or is, is sounds.com. Is that them? Or is it um, uh, sounds.com? I think it belongs. I think that's a native instruments. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's them, but there. Anyway, yeah. they would do those special deals where it's like, you know, nine packs for, for five bucks or, you know, whatever. And that would always get me. Oh my God. Every yeah. freaking time they get me with that stuff. And so, <laughs> I have some ridiculously many sounds. And of course, 99% of them I've never even listened to or gone through or anything. It's just, it's silly. Absolutely silly. So I don't bother buying sounds anymore because why? I don't, I've got more sounds than I can use in 50 lifetimes. Um, but you always have to have more, Jonathan. <laughs> more is always better. More is always better. Uh, it is. Um, so you I know, love them. <laughs> I, I may still be in the, the hoarder phase. I, I don't know. I it, believe me, it's a it's a conscious resistance. I have to, I had to just be like, all right, I'm getting off your mailing list. It's so fun. Just slice yeah. it up. Just yeah, hit exactly. auto slice. Just exactly. slice. <laughs> exactly. Uh, I had to very deliberately remove myself from those lists and be like, no, no more. Just I, you can't contact me. Go away. Uh, you know. So it's it's something I had to really d- just decide to get a handle on is not just hoarding more sounds for the sake of hoarding more sounds. If I'm not making music with them, then there's no point. And so I actually find that you know less is more. That that old saying, but it's, there's a lot of truth to that. And I really like 
these days when I do carve out a you know a little a little bit of time to make a song like you know that that uh, uh, be dental with me little idea thing whatever I I threw up on my SoundCloud recently. You did that in the dentist's office, didn't you? Yeah, I was in the dentist's office. I had like forty five minutes to kill. My girlfriend was getting her teeth cleaned or whatever. My, you know, I was and I was next after that. Uh, so I just whipped out my iPhone and. I used, I think, three different apps. I don't even remember which ones they were. And uh, they all sync with, um, uh, what do you call it? Uh, Ableton Link. Is that what they call it? Link? Yeah. Link, uh, yeah. Ableton right? Link. Yeah. That's, yeah. yeah I've, I've never used Link, but mm-hmm. yeah, I know that's, that's the that's protocol for anyway. ha- helping those things talk to each other. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, I just played around on my phone and I, I had them all playing together so I could hear all the apps simultaneously and I'm layering stuff up and whatever, but it wasn't. It was just a loop. It was like a 16 bar loop or whatever. Um, but with all these different parts that could come in and out at different times. And then once I got home, I just plugged my phone into the computer and discovered I didn't know this until I did this, that uh, Mac OS, uh, my laptop's a Mac, I plugged into that. Mac OS now has a feature where you can just tell it your sound input source, your audio input source is your phone. Hmm. So you don't have to go through any shenanigans anymore to get digital audio out of your phone. No exporting files, no extra special converter, cable, nothing. Wow. Just plug it in and say, phone is the source. And I was wow. recording digitally over the wire. So you just go to the system settings of your Mac. I didn't, yeah, I didn't know that. Yeah, just right there. I didn't know I that. I didn't either. I was shocked. I had no idea. Huh? So I then fired up Audacity, hit record, and then I just jammed out the parts live on my phone and and just see what happens. And that's it. And then that way I threw it up on, on SoundCloud and that's it. And you know, it's, it's rough. It's not, you know, whatever, but it's, it's an idea, but it took me no time to generate. I did it literally in the doctor's office, the dentist's office on my phone. Yeah. And then I spent like an extra half hour once I got home, just kind of putting the pieces together and in, in, in a very haphazard way. I mean, I have never, I have never live jammed something into audacity before. I mean, that is just so like, borderline ghetto like like it's, it's, it's <laughs> I don't not think you give your, I don't think you give yourself enough credit though it's kind of it's a cool <laughs> little track man I mean it's it definitely like got like that experimental vibe to it but like yeah. it fits like that's so true of so much in electronic huh? mm-hmm. like well, it's so. the kind of stuff you can do now like you yeah. can do that on your phone how cool is that like that's incredible it, it is do you do you have any app recommendations any favorite apps for oh, yeah, music yeah. on mobile totally one of my all-time absolute favorites my my total go-to's to this day is propeller head figure hmm. um it was a buck at the time i got it many many years ago it's free now it disappeared for a while when they went away from being propeller head and now i guess they, they're reason the studios now or whatever but they they became they were alley hoopa or whatever for a while and so it disappeared and now it's back and whatever but yeah figure it's on the ios store it's free it is just so easy to use. Um, it's it's like Euclidean based, so it's the, the loops are always in time and everything always works. And you know it's got automatic scale control, so that you can't really play a wrong note and different arpeggiations. And it's just so easy. It's one handed. Do it with your thumb, and you just sit there and play stuff in. It's it's so quick. It's so easy. I love generating ideas from that. Yeah, um, that's great. And then with with Ableton Link, like I said, I'll. I'll maybe they call it wireless link, whatever it is, but I will sync other apps to it. And some of my other favorites are for a more full fledged 
mobile DAW experience, uh, um, Korg gadget. Oh yeah. Gadget's cool. Yeah. Really impressive. It's, it's a little bit more complicated. You, you need to probably understand how to use a DAW and that kind of thing to, to get the most out of it. Yeah. But it is also an amazing program. It sounds fantastic. It, I mean, the Korg legacy of sound is really, really good. Um, and it's very flexible. It's capable of doing most of the basic stuff that you do in something like an Ableton. Um, and another one I really like because again, it's just so simple and, and quick and easy to pick up and go is called Oxy. Don't know that one. A U A U X Y. There's two different versions of it. There's like a, a pro one and a non pro one or a free one and a paid one or so I forget what, but I have both of them. And it's, it's like right between figure and gadget. It has some more a bit like figure is a loop. That's it. You can't string things together. There's no moving blocks around. There's no constructing a track. It's a loop. Mm -hmm. And you can specify the length of the loop up to like, I think, 32 bars or whatever. And, and that's all you get. That's it. Mm -hmm. um, but in Gadget, of course, is an actual, it's a DAW. You can actually build up tracks and have multiple sets and loops and repetitions and all this kind of thing. And Oxy is like right between the two. It's, it's UI for creating stuff is very much like figure. You can do it one handed. It's just got a little piano roll and it automatically keeps stuff in time and, and in, in musical pitch uh, scale and, and all that kind of thing. But then it has the ability to also string bits together and turn them on and off. And so you can kind of have bring things in, bring things out. Um, and you combine those all together and have them all playing in the sync on your phone while you're just killing time somewhere is phenomenal um it, my my girlfriend used to take some uh figure drawing classes at a local museum here and so i would take her to these classes and the museum it was empty during the, the middle of the day so it's a small small local museum in uh, in silicon valley and so it was always empty so i would while she's out at her class for an hour hour and a half whatever it was i would bring my i have a, a my, my mobile rig was in a backpack yeah and uh you know i'd grab my laptop and my mobile rig and my phone and my mobile rig would have my ipad in it as well and a little mixer and you know all the pieces i needed for this and i would go plop down in the middle of their gallery room big enormous room like just like bright sound aids and a really cool sounding space because it was so big and i would plop down in the middle of it and just pull out my laptop and pull out my gear and set it around and spread it out and and plug the cables into the mixer and everything and then I would just sit there and jam out ideas huh. on the fly. And if I have, I got, if I got something that was particularly good, I had my laptop there with Ableton on it. If I wanted to, I could record stuff. I could layer stuff up. I could go as far as I wanted to. I mostly didn't. I would just use the mobile stuff, but I love it again. If I had, if I had an hour to kill, I could come out with something that was actually a cool idea. And, and if I wanted to flesh it out later, I could, but yeah. the mobile stuff is just amazing what you can do now. I, I love that thought too, because that just makes me think about how being in a different space can help inspire creativity. Too. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and sitting in the middle of an art gallery mm -hmm. surrounded by art, by paintings on every wall. Yeah. Yeah. And, and with all the natural light, because there was tons and tons of natural light. It was really bright, really spacious. And there's no one around, just me Amazing. in this room that had this great sound, a big, because it was such a big space. Yeah, I wouldn't want to mix in it, sure. But yeah, yeah, you know, that's not the point. Yeah. Cool to just sit there and play and have this big sound. Yeah. It was like, you're wow, sketching, cool. you're sketching, yeah. you're getting totally. inspiration. Love it. Totally. Love so that. that was that was a cool space. And I like that. I've done that a few times. I've gone out to the park uh and done the same thing in the park and just sit in the park and lay out all my gear and you know in that case put my headphones on because there's you know barbecue going on over there and a party over there whatever yeah put my headphones on and just go into my own little world but i'm sitting in the park and i'm surrounded by green and trees and grass and 
you get a different thing out of that. Something else happens. So, yeah, no, I love that, man. hundred percent. That's great. Well, Hey man, uh, I want to start wrapping up here. I got just a couple more questions for you that cool. I'd like to ask. Uh, one, one thing that I love to ask my guests is that imagine you've got that inspiration. Maybe you've got a little sketch of eight or 16 bars and you kind of got mm. an idea that started, but then you get stuck. Mm. What do you like to do to <sighs> break yourself out of the loop? God, there's, there's so many different possible ways to do that. There isn't really a, a one answer to that. I don't think I even have a go-to. It just depends on the moment. Um, but a few things you can do. Um, one is to, to just get really radical and utterly change the sound of whatever you're working on. Um, and like, if it's a, if it's a, you know, maybe it's a drum pattern and you've got a, a lead line of some kind and that's it. You've got nothing else. Well, you know, change that lead line. Maybe it's a, you know, a real a, a sawtooth type synth, something like that, whatever. Change it to an ethereal pad mm. and just see what it is. Change it to an acoustic guitar. And what does that sound like? Change it to a trumpet. What does that sound like? You know, change it to a sample of a dog bark. You know, who knows what? Just, just flip through different <laughs> sounds. Because even if you don't end up keeping whatever that thing was and it, you know the dog bark oh my god that was ridiculous it sounded horrible but <laughs> it kicked off an idea in my head made me think oh but you know what would be cool and you go off in a completely different direction the dog bark is forgotten but the dog bark got you to make that leap out of the loop you're stuck in it I just love breaks that. your it's, it's a pattern interrupt it's, you know that's in in psychology terms it's a pattern interrupt and your loop <laughs> is the pattern literally it's the pattern and you need to interrupt that pattern somehow. Love it. Um, other things you can do to play with is, you know, take the last half of the pattern, the first half of the pattern and swap them. Oh, yeah. Put the last half of the front and then the first half of the, at the, at the back. And just see see what happens. That's a good one. Um, you know, or split it up into more. Split it up into, you know, say it's a 16-bar loop. Chop it up into four-bar chunks. Now you got four of them. Mix them around. See what you get. Um, a technique that I've seen, I don't remember where I first heard it, but I've seen it repeated many times. It's probably well known to a lot of people, but maybe not to everybody is for expanding on a loop. If you've got, say you've got the, the classic, I've got a, a four bar in drum. The easiest way to understand this is in, in drums, but it works for anything. If you've got a four bar drum beat, but it's just a four bar drum beat. Okay, fine. You don't, you duplicate it, you double it. And now at the end of the second repetition, do something different, mm -hmm. change it up. Mm -hmm. And then you now you have an eight bar loop. Mm -hmm. You have the first four and the second four, and they're, ne they're nearly identical. They only change at the end. So it's, you, you don't want to get too far off. You want them anchored to each other, right? So you want them mostly the same. Repetition is, is critical in music. You need that kind of repetition to anchor people and ground them in the music. But you want a little, just enough variation to keep it interesting. So now you've got a four bar and a four bar and the second four bar ends a little differently than the first four bar did. Okay, cool. Then now you take that eight bar, you duplicate it again. Mm -hmm. And then you can change it only at the end. So what you end up with is your first four bars and then your second four bars happen. And then your third four bars is the same as the first four bars. Mm -hmm. But then your fourth four bars is different again. It's not the same as the second fourth bars. Yeah. And you basically can build the energy a little bit. So what what ends up happening is your first four bars ends however it ends. Your second four bar ends a little more interestingly. So it has a little extra energy at the end. Then your third four bars goes back to the first four bars. So it, the energy comes down again. Yep. And then your last four bars ends even more excitedly than the second four bars. So your energy you're taking is this journey of kind of flat, 
up a little and backslide again and up a lot and then repeat. Yeah. And it. It's all about that, that energy journey. Yes. And so that's a, a really easy way, especially in drums, but it can apply to bass lines, lead lines, anything. If you've got a really short snippet, you're like, I like that, but it's not enough. I need four more bars of that or four or 16 more bars of that or whatever. Yeah. Just copy, change, tweak, copy, change, tweak. And you're good. I think that's especially true in electronic music. It's perfect. Perfect. Tip. Totally. And you know, the funny thing is when you, when you think of that technique in mind, start listening to electronica tracks and you'll hear that technique in use all the time, mm -hmm. whether they did it intentionally, knowledgeably and thinking this is what I'm doing, or it's just how we as musicians tend to do things. I don't know, but you, I hear this all the time where the first four bars of something are one way, the second four bars, third four bars repeats the first four bars and the fourth four bars is a little different. It's just over and over and over again. Yeah, 100%, man. It's a great tip. Great tip. What advice would you give someone who's just getting started composing electronic music? A good first place to start is where do you want to go with this idea of I want to compose electronic music? Because what does that mean to you? That can mean a lot of different things. You could go down the Danny Elfman route and be doing soundtracks. Mm -hmm. You know, and maybe that's what you want to do. You want to score films. And I, I at one point, that was I, my vision when I was a kid. is like, I'm going to score films. That's what I'm going to do. I'm going to become a film composer. And, you know, again, life had other ideas. But um, you could go that route. Um, and especially these days, I just the other day, I saw a video, mm -hmm. uh, it was a promotional video from Spitfire Audio with the guy who did the soundtrack to uh, The Queen's Gambit. Have you seen that by chance? Oh, yeah. It's really good. Yeah. yeah. It was with the guy who did the score for that. And highlighting specifically the musical passage at the very end of the whole season, um, the, the triumphant ending, no spoiler alert for anybody who hasn't seen it. Um, but uh, it was amazing to just sit with him for, it's like a half hour long, it's on YouTube, and uh, have him walk you through his whole process of where he got the ideas for the themes and how he incorporated them and how he worked to picture. And the part that completely blew me away, I had no idea, all of it is samples. Yeah. There's no orchestra. I, I thought the whole thing was scored from an orchestra. That's amazing. It was yeah. all sample packs. I was like, you've got to be kidding me. Oh my God. It was all, it was all contact libraries. You know, it's just that's the power. Incredible. The power of the um, DAW. Yeah. It's amazing. So yeah. The, the days of uh, the idea of a, uh, you know, quote unquote synthesized score, electronic score be, uh, being in anything other than totally normal, those days are gone. It is completely the norm now. So you can be an electronic composer and compose using real sounds and you're still an electronic composer i love it i love it you know on the other hand if you if you want to go the dead mouse route be a you know global superstar doing big edm festivals okay that's a whole different whole that's different, different thing. thing so yeah. i think you should start by figuring out like what draws me yeah just having your vision yeah mm -hmm. where do i want to go yeah yep. i think that's a great tip i think it's a great tip yeah start there and see where you end up i love it i love it uh okay last question do you have any uh, favorite books, YouTube channels, classes, anything that you might mm. recommend to somebody that wants to be a bedroom producer? Oh, there are so many now. It, it's so great. Uh, you know, as anybody who wants to learn anything, this is not exclusive to music at all, but you know, just we live in an era of YouTube and, and tutorials and, and endless, infinite content. It's so awesome. You can learn absolutely anything short of probably like open heart surgery, although you might even be able to learn that on YouTube. Who knows? <laughs> um, but, uh, Probably. you know, uh, uh, these days there's stuff, you know, Sonic Academy, 
uh, as an example for paid tutorials. They've got a lot of really good stuff on there. Um, Ask Video is another one that I've I've been through a lot of their tutorials in the past, and both of them frequently have deals going on where you can get ridiculously cheap subscriptions for a year or whatever, and um, just mine the hell out of their library for that year or whatever and just make the most of it mm-hmm. uh it can really go a long way um of course there's things like berkeley online where you and i met mm-hmm. uh the berkeley school of music if you've got a little bit a little bit more money because it's not exactly cheap um but you know it is really good uh the berkeley school of music their online program i actually once upon a time i wanted to go to physical berkeley um, mm-hmm. i actually went yeah. there and visited and saw the campus and looked around and at the time, I was fresh out of high school. I quickly realized, holy crap, I do not have the academic chops to even have any prayer of getting into this school. So that was out. Um, did not realize that it wasn't just, I want to do music, so I'm going to go to this school. It's like, no, 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 no. Um, but yeah, Berkeley Online is good. Um, YouTube, of course, there's so many channels on YouTube with just phenomenal tutorial content. One guy who puts out really good stuff. I haven't checked in on him in, in quite some time, but I, I've watched a lot of his stuff in the past. It was um, Sad- Sadowick. I don't know how to say his Sadowick. name. You know? I don't know. Sadowick no, Productions. I'll look him up. We'll, we'll um, link him. Yeah. I want to say it's S-A-D-O-W-I-C-K, I think. He's up in Seattle, I believe, and uh, does tons of free, really long, multi-part, many, many hours long, in-depth tutorials on production and songwriting and stuff and a lot of really good stuff there synthesis you know massive awesome. all that kind of stuff awesome um but yeah it's a great time to be wanting to learn anything because it's all out there you just got to go look for it love it man awesome tip well uh i appreciate you coming to chat with me today man i appreciate you having me on this was a lot of fun so we well, haven't had a, a chance to just sit down and really talk this stuff in a while so this is good yeah we'll have to do it again sometime for sure man totally love to I love that Jonathan has so many different approaches to how he writes music. And even if he's starting with a blank slate, he just says, hey, put something down, get something down and then work with it and develop it. Also, he has some really interesting workflows. For instance, I would have never thought of writing to an acapella if he hadn't suggested it. And I just love that he always throughout his entire life has always come back to this and always showed up to it. And over time has produced an interesting body of work as a result. As always, I hope you got as much out of the podcast as I did today. If you enjoyed the conversation, please be sure to subscribe or leave a positive review or a comment. Also, you may find that you get more out of the conversation by discussing some of these topics with friends of yours who are also producers. If you want to get in touch with me, hit me up at Producer Chip on Twitter. Lastly, if you want to check out the website, bedroomproducing.com, I'll have the show notes up there. I'll link as many of the sound treatment options and other things that Jonathan discussed as I can. And I've also got the reading list up there right now, which has some really cool books for bedroom producers. Until next time, my name is Chip, and this is the Bedroom Producing Podcast. Thank you for listening to the Bedroom Producing Podcast. For more content like this, visit bedroomproducing.com.